Welcome back to the Simply Christian Life podcast. My name is Michael Burkle-Hun, and in addition to being your host for this podcast, I'm also the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of the Rio Grande, which incorporates a beautiful part of the world that includes both the entire state of New Mexico and the far west part of Texas, including the Big Bend area and the beautiful city of El Paso. It is Lent, and we are reading together the book by James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And in this, the third episode of our podcast, we are reading chapter two of You Are What You Love. Just a little recap, chapter one introduced us to the concept of liturgy as something that is about our hearts and a habit as something which helps us form our passions, shaping our desires in a particular direction. And here in chapter two, Dr. Smith is inviting us to think about what he calls secular liturgies, those things and habits and ways of being that are not in the church, but nonetheless are liturgical in the sense that they shape our hearts and they form our desires. So let's get into chapter two here. Chapter two, which is entitled, You Might Not Love What You Think, Learning to Read Secular Liturgies. In chapter one, Dr. Smith asked us, what do you want? And used that question, which is asked by Jesus a number of times in the gospels, to frame our conversation about how our hearts are shaped. And at the beginning of chapter two here, Dr. Smith invites us to think about two movies. He uses two movie examples to get our minds thinking about how our hearts are shaped. And and the first movie is one that I hadn't heard of before. It's Andrei Tarkovsky's masterpiece called Stalker. Not a movie that I'm familiar with. But in this movie, uh, Dr. Smith describes how there is a room in, uh, this is sort of a post-apocalyptic kind of um, strange otherworldly room where people are brought and there is a door at the other end of the room and when you step through that door you're going to be given what your deepest heart desires and apparently as people approach the threshold of that room they start to get nervous when you might expect a person to be very excited by the prospect of just walking through that door and i'll get what my heart most desires Instead, as people approach that threshold, they start to worry. Do I know what my heart most desires? Or is there something beneath my my consciousness that my heart is yearning for, something that I'm not willing to acknowledge with my mind? And and so this image from the movie Stalker uh, is used to help us Understand that we might not love what we think. If you were to ask me, what am I most passionate about? I would tell you that I'm most passionate about spending time with my family. And that's true. And yet, if you were to look at my calendar, you would see that time with family is not nearly as, uh, I don't spend as much time with my family as I do with my office. And I love my colleagues there too, don't get me wrong. But part of what... uh, this book is inviting me to consider is the distinction between what I would say is my heart's desire 
that's the first movie that he raises. And, and the second one that he starts to talk about is that uh, movie that came out, I think, gosh, over a decade ago called American, uh, American Beauty. And he talks about that one as well as uh, a story of a, a, a man going through a middle-aged crisis, thinking that he is attracted to a very young woman and then uh, realizing sort of in a, uh, in a twist at the end the reality of who he actually is. And so on page 29, Dr. Smith invites us to think about our deepest desires. Your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because your action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which, as we've observed, are habits which we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. And later down on the page, he says, This is why the people of God are called to regularly confess their sins. A historic confession from the Book of Common Prayer names this tension. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. On page 30, Dr. Smith writes, The body of Christ is that unique community of practice whose members own up to the fact that we don't always love what we say we do, that the devices and desires of our hearts outstrip our best intentions. And so particularly in this season of Lent, when we focus a little bit on, on penitence, on uh, turning away from the things that um, are not really what our heart wants to desire, but are the things that our heart desires, shaping our loves, as we think about penance, as we think about turning, as we think about confession, particularly in this season of Lent, let us imagine confession as the process of fine-tuning the desires of our hearts and not just taking for granted those things. The second part of chapter 2 is entitled, Under the Radar, Our Unconscious Loves. And in this section, he talks about love as a habit, which is something that we take on uh, as we do the same thing time and time again. And part of what Dr. Smith invites us to focus on in this second section is how much of our lives are, living, are lived by habit without being a part of our, conscience, of our conscious mind. On page 33, he writes, over the past 20 years, psychology has come to appreciate the overwhelming influence of non-conscious or automatic operations that shape our behavior, confirming in many ways the ancient wisdom of philosophers like Aristotle and Aquinas. He goes on to say that there are scholars who suggest that only about 5% of what we do in a given day is the outcome of conscious, deliberate choices which rings true to me. I mean, when you just think about the, what you do in the morning, when you get out of bed, put your feet on the floor, head to the bathroom to brush your teeth, so much of what is going on is happening automatically by rote. You don't have to think about how to button your shirt or tie your shoes. You don't have to think about how to get the coffee maker brewing. Your th mind is elsewhere while you are accomplishing many things uh, by habit. And the image that James K.A. Smith uses 
to uh, illustrate this is uh, invi he invites us to remember what it felt like to learn how to drive a car. And if you've been a parent of a teenager recently, you know how complicated driving is, right? You've got two feet and two hands and you've got all these mirrors and you've got to keep track of all kinds of things. 20 miles an hour does not seem like you're going very fast, but if you're doing 20 miles an hour in a parking lot, trying to figure out how to avoid that truck and stop here and turn into that parking space and get the wheel turned in just the right place. Driving a car is a very complicated thing. But after we do it for a while, it becomes automatic to the point where you can drive home from your office at the end of a long day of work and realize when you hit the driveway that you have no idea how you got there. You can't remember the turns you took or the traffic you were in. Your brain was entirely somewhere else, maybe listening to the radio, but your body was driving. This is the kind of unconscious power of habit that regulates and rules much of our lives. And so what, what Smith is trying to get us to think about is those unconscious habits that are actually not just the things we choose to do, but are things which are shaping us. You're listening to The Simply Christian Life, and if you like what you hear, give us some stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a comment in the margin. That's how other people find us. And thanks for listening. And now back to our reading of chapter 2. On page 36, he starts talking about how character is that part of the human life that is formed by habit. Over and, over and now back again. to our reading of By chapter doing 2. doing the right thing time and time again, it becomes the habit for us to do the right thing. And if we're going to change one of our habits, like learning to uh, hang up the towel instead of drop it on the floor, if we do it time and time again, the time will come where we don't even think about it. But changing a habit can be difficult because so much of what we do is automatic. Professor Smith talks about how there is a, we can learn a new habit, and he describes, for example, learning to play the piano or learning to type or learning to drive. We can choose to learn a habit to make something automatic. But he says that our culture and our society around us is subtly and in ways we can barely understand shaping our loves and molding our hearts. And his invitation in chapter 2 is to help us examine the ways society shapes our hearts and molds our desires so that we can be more conscious about, how we, about what we love and, and so that we, we do love what we think we love. He mentions on page 37 that stereotypes are a powerful example of the sort of unconscious habituated way of perceiving the world, which drives our actions. He says on page 37, no one signs up to hold prejudiced stereotypes. Instead, they seep into us unawares, acquired unintentionally and yet over time becoming habits of perception that govern and guide our behavior. Now consider the implications of this for what you love. If you think of love-shaping practices as liturgies, this means that you could be worshiping other gods without even knowing it. 
Habits are formative practices that do something to you unconsciously but effectively tuning your heart to the songs of Babylon rather than to the songs of Zion. So when we're imagining these cultural secular liturgies, we're talking about the things that seep into our lives unconsciously by virtue of habit, the way our society invites us to think of certain people and even ourselves in certain ways that may not be true and also may be detrimental to ourselves. In the next section of chapter 2, which is entitled Practicing Apocalypse, Recognizing Rival Liturgies, Professor Smith invites us to consider that we are a whole person, not just a brain, and that we need to recognize the power and significance of pre-intellectual aspects of who we are. The things that happen to us before we've given them much thought can actually change the people we are. And he invites us to think about those cultural practices as liturgies so that we might wake up to the power that these habits that our culture wants us to be involved in have in our lives. On page 38, he says, that means looking again at all sorts of supposedly neutral and benign cultural institutions and rituals, things that we do, and seeing their formative, even liturgical power, the fact that the things that we do are not only things that we do, but they're things, they do things to us. And then Dr. Smith invites us to ponder and to look at liturgically one uh, a very common American experience, the experience of going to the shopping mall. And Dr. Smith invites us to imagine the shopping mall as if it is a religious place, as if it is a temple where we go to worship, where we go to have our hearts formed. And then he breaks it down using this wonderful analogy to help us imagine that as you walk into a shopping mall, you can see there are a variety of storefronts, right? A variety of stores offering clothes or electronics or shoes or different things. And that each one of those stores is like a little chapel. And we are invited by the way we enter the shopping mall to go into each one of these little chapels. And when we go into the chapel, we engage in contemplation. He's deliberately using religious words to talk about what we do in the marketplace. We go into the, the, these chapels, these shops, and we begin to contemplate the clothes that are there. But we're also influenced by the music that is playing and the way the lighting is done and the atmosphere that each of these shops has. And we're being invited to imagine a different part of ourself that we might be different, our lives might be changed if we were to only purchase this pair of shoes or boots or this jacket or something like that. And he talks about how when we go into the shopping mall, it is not an intellectual thing. There is not a list on the top of the front door that describes the values that the mall is trying to get us to believe in. Rather, we are sort of invited in a pre-intellectual way to have our hearts and our desires shaped by our experience in that shopping mall. On page 41, he says, Victoria's secret is that she is actually after your heart. 
that when we enter the shopping mall, our hearts and our, our desires, our very lives are being molded in ways that we probably don't give much thought to. So he calls the shopping mall a temple, and then he invites us to think about um, the, that when we are in the store, when we are contemplating uh, the possibility of our life as transformed and changed by buying things in this particular store, he says that the acolytes, the people on the shop floor, come around to help us, right? To help us try something on and find the right size. They encourage us to worship. And then when we're ready to commit, we go to the altar, to the cash register, where the priest behind the counter conducts the transaction, both receiving from us and giving to us. And so we leave the shopping mall feeling somehow that our life has been changed by our worship of the ideal self that we have been sold in the shopping mall. It's a brilliant way for us to think about the shopping mall as a sort of covert liturgy that is changing our heart and molding our life without us even being aware that it is happening. On page 45, he says, how do we learn to be consumerists? Not because someone comes along and offers an argument for why stuff will make us happy. I don't think my way into consumerism, Rather, I'm covertly conscripted into a way of life because I have been formed by cultural practices that are nothing less than secular liturgies. My loves have been automated by rituals I didn't even realize were rituals. And what is it that this ritual, this liturgy of the mall is trying to get us to believe? On page 46 there at the bottom, he says that liturgy, as I'm using the word, is a shorthand term for those rituals that are loaded with an ultimate story about who we are and what we are for. I'm Michael Hun, and thank you for listening to The Simply Christian Life. You know, by leaving a comment or giving us some stars on iTunes, that will help other people who aren't necessarily Episcopalians find this podcast. And if you have any feedback for me, Please let me know in the comments or on Facebook as well. And thanks for listening to The Simply Christian Life. Liturgy is a shorthand term for rituals that are loaded with an ultimate story about who we are and what we're for. Those of us who go into Episcopal churches are comfortable with the word liturgy, I think, for the most part. We normally understand that the word liturgy means the work of the people. And we understand sort of, again, in an intuitive way, when we come into church on a Sunday morning and we kneel down and we get ready to pray, we are coming in order for our lives to be changed, for our loves to be formed. And we gather in that liturgy, which very much is an ultimate story about who we are and what we are for. We come into the church in order to be reminded that we are children of God, no matter how much money we have, no matter what our race, no matter what our life has been like before we went in there, we go into the church in order to be reminded that we are first and foremost children of God. And what are we for? We are for love. We are for the love of God to love this world and to change this world. The liturgy of the church is constantly working on our hearts in that sort of a way. 
But what is the liturgy of the mall working on? This is what James Smith wants us to think about as he comes to the end of this chapter. And he, he mentions four messages which our consumer culture and the shopping mall are trying to get us to believe without even coming out and making the argument. They're just subtly sort of whispering these values into our hearts. And here's the first one. I'm broken, therefore I shop. In this first one, what Dr. Smith is talking about is the prevalence of those images. And we see them on television, we see them in advertising, we see them in glossy magazines, we see them when we go into the shopping mall on these big pictures. Beautiful, beautiful people having a great time, living meaningful lives. Everything looks great. They are hanging out with other beautiful people. They are slender and attractive, and they look like they're smart, and they're certainly having a good time, and they're not working very hard. These people are having a great life. And what Dr. Smith says is that by showing us these constant images of these beautiful people having this beautiful life, our consumer culture is trying to whisper in our ears, you are not one of these beautiful people. But if you come into the mall, if you participate in this consumerist desire and culture, maybe you'll become one of these beautiful people. Buy that jacket, just a new pair of shoes, maybe some more makeup or a different hairstyle. Maybe you'll be happier if you come in to this sort of a way. So I'm broken, therefore I shop. We shop in order to meet some need, some brokenness in ourselves. The second thing that Dr. Smith says that our, um, that our shopping experience is whispering quietly into our hearts is, I shop with others. This idea, of course, means that that shopping is not an individual experience. We, we go with others, but it also means that when I go into shopping, whether I'm shopping online or whether I'm shopping in the mall, I am intuiting, I'm seeping in, what is seeping into me are these images of what beauty and goodness mean, right? I am seeing the images of these beautiful, cultured, happy people, and I am in taking that in, and I'm learning to judge myself by those standards, I'm also learning to judge everyone else I encounter by those standards. On page 49, he writes, as a result, we not only judge ourselves against that standard, but we fall into the habit of evaluating others by those same standards. It is this subtle influence of our judgment that Dr. Smith is calling into question as he looks at the liturgy, the secular liturgy of the mall. The third thing he says is, uh, the third thing that the, the mall is trying to whisper into our hearts is this. The message is, I shop and shop and shop and shop, therefore I am. Dr. Smith unfolds this idea that shopping itself as a religious activity means that I go into the mall hoping to have a changed life. And he, he uses the phrase, consumerism is redemption. That I go in to consume somehow to redeem myself and come out a better, perhaps more free, perhaps more beautiful, perhaps more powerful person than I was when I went in. But then he gets into the nuances of this consume, consumption as redemption, pointing out that 
after we buy something, when we go out, you know, I go into the mall, I buy a new jacket. When I come out of the mall wearing that jacket, I feel cool and I feel like this is the new me and I feel like other people are going to say, hey, he's got a cool jacket. And then I go out into, the, into my life and after wearing that jacket for a month or two, it's just my old jacket. And it doesn't have that same redemption power that it had when I bought it. And so I, I want to go back to the mall to buy something else. Right? So, th- so there's this repeated sort of obsolescence. And I think as I'm reading um, this chapter of You Are What You Love, part of what I'm becoming aware of is the fact that when we go to buy new things, we go to buy those things not because the things, what, what Dr. Smith says is it's not acquiring that gives us redemption. Rather, what we're consuming, what we're eating, what we're burning up, what we're using until it's gone, is this concept of ourselves as somebody other than we are. And it's like a drug. We need another hit of that drug. We need to go back and get more of that. What we need is not the stuff. What we need is the identity that we think we're buying when we go into the mall. So I shop and shop and shop and shop, therefore I am. This is this subtle message that it is in consuming that we are made better human beings. The final thing that uh, Dr. Smith notes in this chapter two is uh, the, the, the final message that is being whispered into our hearts as our hearts are being changed by consumerism is don't ask, don't tell. Which is to say, as we go in to buy these things, whether it's a new car, a new pair of shoes, we go in to buy these things, don't ask where it came from. Don't ask how much of the earth's resources went into it. Don't ask how long it will last or what quality it is. Don't ask about that. And, and don't tell it either in the sense that when we go into this temple that is the shopping experience, we go in almost intentionally suspending our minds. And, and there's been a lot of consumer studies that show we make purchasing decisions not based on logic but based on desire, based on what we think we think, not on what is actually true. Because consumerism is shaping our hearts and the don't ask, don't tell thing is uh, is the part of the relationship that we have with a shopping mall, which is um, to suspend the actual intellectual thought uh, in order to engage in the worship of this different reality that we are experiencing when we go into a shop. So four things that the secular liturgy of the marketplace is whispering into our hearts. And now we're coming to the end of chapter two of You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. And he invites us to do a liturgical audit of our lives, which is part of the reason I wanted to read this book during Lent. Dr. Smith invites us to look liturgically at the things we do and how we spend our time and how we spend our money in order to think about what we, how what we, what we love is being shaped by these secular liturgies. And so as we come to the uh, close of this chapter, I'd like to invite you to, to follow me in doing a couple of uncomfortable Lenten things. You know, in every Episcopal church, there's a big red book that is the liturgical register. It's a record of all of the services of worship 
that are conducted in that church. Every funeral is in there. Every wedding is in there. Every Sunday Eucharist is in there. And how many people came is written in that liturgical register. And it occurred to me as I was coming to the end of chapter 2, and as Dr. Smith encourages us to do a liturgical audit of our lives, that I could look at two documents for my life as liturgical registers, and that might be a helpful Lenten practice. So I, I, I'm going to get out my calendar, and I'm going to look through how I spend my time. I'm going to look back over the past few months since I became Bishop of the Diocese of the Rio Grande, and I'm going to try to look at that calendar to see, to think of it as a liturgical register. Look at your calendar as a record of the things and, and the ways you worship in a day-to-day way. Not just thinking about worship as going to church, but thinking about worship as where is your heart directed in love? Because I think the calendar will show us some of that. So let's take a moment to look at our calendar for the last few months and look at it as a liturgical register recording the services of worship to the gods other than God that you love. What liturgies are written in your calendar? What values and what life is recorded there? Does your calendar suggest to you somebody who is a, an outwardly, um, upwardly mobile professional person? Does your calendar, what life does your calendar suggest you're trying to lead? It might be a helpful Lenten discipline for us. Okay, the second thing, the second liturgical register Uh, and this one will probably make us all uncomfortable, is let's get out our credit card statement. Let's get out our debit card statement. Let's get out our, not just the budget, but our actual expenditures. And let's look at that as a liturgical register. What values does our shopping pattern suggest we hold? What, What loves does our shopping patterns show that we uh, embody. Because I think if we, if we accept what Dr. Smith is saying, that, that only 5% of what we do in a given day is an actual conscious thought, there are proud of a, probably a lot of unexamined purchases and a lot of unexamined hours that are spent doing things and buying things that are somehow related to a life we're hoping for. What does that life look like? And what does that life tell us about what we're actually desiring, what we're actually wanting? You know, there's that beautiful encounter where um, Jesus is talking to somebody, to one of the disciples, and, and Jesus says, do you believe? And, and the disciple says, I do believe. Lord, help my unbelief. And this is the practice of living in a human life, Right? The things that we love are not the things that we actually do. Uh, our, our constant confession of sin is echoed in those words from the Book of Common Prayer. We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Those devices and desires of our own hearts are being shaped by external, cultural influences and liturgies like the liturgy of the shopping mall. And it is only by taking a a step back and say, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help me work on 
pruning away those parts of my life that are taking me away from what I truly love, taking me away from the people I truly love, taking me away from the God I truly love, taking me away from the life that is actually fulfilling by selling me a life that is only partly fulfilling. So, what do you believe? And what do you want to believe? What do you love? And what do you want to love? And what in this season of Lent can you change in terms of your habits, your daily practices, and the way you worship that could make a difference in the practice of your faith and the living of your lives? God is calling each of us to be more and more the child of God we were created to be. And so often, the consumerist values sell us a different life than that, trying to convince us that if we were different than who God is calling us to be, we would suddenly be more valuable, more popular, more beautiful, what have you. But instead, let us use some time this Lent to, to nurture our desires and our loves in a holy direction. My name is Michael Berkelhun. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Simply Christian Life. And thank you for following along as we've been reading You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit by James K.A. Smith. I look forward to spending the time with you next time as the next episode we consider Chapter 3, The Spirit Meets You Where You Are, Historic Worship for a Postmodern Age. God bless you and may you have a holy Lent. Mm-hmm.